Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1979, director Fred Walton released his first full-length film, a horror movie titled When a Stranger Calls. The story was based on an urban legend called The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. In the film, a young babysitter is tormented by phone calls from a strange man. He repeatedly asks her, Soon, viewers discovered that the man on the phone is a killer, and he's calling from inside the house. This movie wasn't the first of its kind, and it certainly wasn't the last. There's an entire genre of horror films centered around babysitters. Sometimes they're the villains, most often they're the victims. Beginning in the 1970s, telephones also increasingly appeared in scary movies. The trope was further cemented in our pop culture lexicon by films like Scream and Are You in the House Alone, which depict teenage girls being hunted by murderers who call them and harass them. In pop culture, the telephone became the weapon criminals used to target girls. And in one small Canadian town, this fictional trope became a horrifying reality. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode in a special three-part series on babysitters. For the last few weeks, we've been diving into the history of babysitting in American culture. We're exploring how babysitters became the subjects of urban legends, slasher films, and real-life crimes. Last week, we discussed the sexualization and mistreatment babysitters faced while on the job. We also investigated the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley, a 15-year-old girl who went missing from La Crosse, Wisconsin. This week, we'll talk about how babysitters became horror movie tropes. Then we'll look into the 1981 murder of 15-year-old Kelly Cook, a girl who was lured from her home with a phone call. She got into a car with a man who called himself Bill Christensen, but that wasn't his real name. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. (laughs) 
As early as 1950, Americans realized babysitting wasn't the simple, safe job they thought it was. Jeanette Christman was murdered in 1950. Evelyn Hartley disappeared in 1953. More and more often, sitters were meeting grisly ends. So in 1961, the Inglewood, California Police Department helped produce an educational film called Girls Beware. In the opening scene, a teenager gets a call from a man asking for a babysitter. She needs the extra money, so she agrees to watch his children that evening. He picks her up 15 minutes later. By midnight, the girl still hasn't come home. Her mother gets worried. She calls the police, but law enforcement can't figure out where her daughter has gone. A week later, they find her body on the side of an isolated road. The messages were clear. Babysitting was dangerous. Strangers couldn't be trusted, and girls definitely shouldn't get in cars with people that they didn't know. Girls Beware wasn't the only film that cast babysitting as a death sentence. Through the 1970s and 1980s, Horror movies featuring sitters grew in popularity. The unconscious fear that many teenage girls faced became an on-screen cliché. At the same time, crime rates increased. People in larger cities locked their houses and kept a close eye on their children. An atmosphere of fear fell over the country. Nobody wanted to become the victim of a slasher film monster. But this terror hadn't quite made it into rural areas. In small towns, it was still common to leave doors open and let kids play without supervision. People in tight-knit communities trusted their neighbors. One such community was called Standard. It was a tiny farming town in rural Alberta, Canada. Standard had a population of just 400 people, one of whom was 15-year-old Kelly Cook. On April 22, 1981, Kelly Cook rolled out of bed, still groggy. It was Wednesday, so she showered, brushed her hair, and got dressed for school. She went down to have breakfast. While she ate, she flipped open a textbook. She was only a sophomore in high school, but she had big aspirations. Kelly Cook wanted to become a lawyer. That meant she had to focus. She studied even as she swallowed bites of toast. When she finished her food, she tossed her plate in the sink. Just before she walked out the front door, the phone rang. Hello? Is this Kelly Cook? Yes, who's this? My name's Bill Christensen. I'm new to the area, but my wife and I need a babysitter tonight. I've been asking around and it sounds like a lot of parents trust you. Oh, that's uh, very nice to hear. Can I pick you up around 8.30 tonight? I'll have to ask my mom. Well, if you aren't free, I'll need to call someone else. Oh, right. I should be able to. I'll let you know if anything changes. Kelly asked her mother Marion if she could babysit for Bill Christensen that night. Marion had never heard of the man before, but Christensen was a very common last name in their small town. She told Kelly to ask around at school and see if anyone knew a Bill Christensen. That day, Kelly talked to her classmates about Bill Christensen. Nobody could put a finger on exactly who he was, but they all assumed he must be someone's cousin or uncle. When Kelly got home that afternoon, she told her mom that Bill was probably related to someone in town. Marion was hesitant. Still, Kelly insisted everything would be fine. Eventually, Marion acquiesced. 
Kelly, her two younger siblings, her mother and her father, all ate dinner together that evening. Then, at 8.30 p.m., the man who called himself Bill Christensen pulled up outside. He drove a light-colored car with Alberta plates. He didn't get out of the vehicle to introduce himself. He just sat in the driveway and waited for Kelly to come to him. Dad, Bill's outside. He's not going to come up to the door? I guess not. All right. Call us when you get there. And remind me when you're going to be home. I'll be back by midnight. Kelly walked out the front door. She and Bill drove away. Within half an hour, Marion and her husband, Walter, were concerned. Kelly hadn't called to let them know she'd arrived at Bill's house, and it was very unlike her to forget to check in. So Marion started calling around town. She asked her friends if they'd heard of Bill Christensen. Everyone knew the surname, but nobody was sure who Bill was. Marion called people who worked at the bank, the convenience store, and the post office. She figured they would be the first to know if someone new had moved to town. But no one had heard of Bill and they didn't know of any new Christensen's in the area either. Marion sat next to the phone, biting her nails. Walter tried to put her at ease. She probably just forgot to call. She's had a lot on her mind lately, studying all the time. I'm sure she'll be back before midnight. But she wasn't. When the clock struck 12, Kelly's parents really started to worry. They didn't want to jump to any conclusions, but something was clearly wrong. Marion called the police and told them she feared her daughter had been abducted. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, arrived without missing a beat. By 12.30 a.m., Constable Jim Bizant was patrolling the streets of Standard, searching for Kelly. Her father sat in the passenger seat with his eyes peeled. You said the man's name was Bill Christensen? Yes. Huh. Never heard of him. Uh, You got any idea where he lives? No. You didn't ask your daughter where she was going to babysit. I didn't think... Did you see this guy? Get a good look at his face or anything? Well, he didn't come to the door. Did you at least write down his license plate number? No, I just... I figured everything would be fine. The constable soon realized just how little information Kelly's parents had. Being from a small town, they trusted their neighbors. They didn't think anything bad could happen in Standard, so they let their daughter drive away with a man they knew practically nothing about. Walter's lack of knowledge was a terrible omen. He rode with the police all night, but despite their best efforts, law enforcement couldn't find any trace of Kelly or her abductor. The search continued into the next morning. Word of Kelly's disappearance spread through Standard, and a group of at least 600 volunteers scoured the town, People made their way through vast fields, looking for any sign of the missing girl. Helicopters got an aerial view, while 40 RCMP officers patrolled the streets. At first, locals and law enforcement were bright-eyed and determined. Beginning on April 23, 1981, every car that drove into or out of Standard was frisked and every driver was questioned. But as the days passed, officers' optimism faded. The work was tedious, exhausting, and ultimately failed to reveal any important information. Marion and Walter Cook couldn't believe it. Kelly had simply vanished. Whoever Bill Christensen was, he'd managed to disappear. The only clue he left was his name. Searching through records from across Canada, law enforcement found at least 35 Bill Christensens in the country. 
It wasn't foolproof, but it was a good place to start. Plus, the RCMP had already been contacted by a potential witness, a telephone operator who believed she'd spoken to Kelly on the night she disappeared. Coming up, officers learn more about the man who called himself Bill Christensen. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala, and we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight, All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. On April 22, 1981, 15-year-old Kelly Cook took a babysitting job with a man who said his name was Bill Christensen. She was supposed to be home by midnight, But days later, she was nowhere to be found. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police followed up on a number of leads. They investigated every Bill Christensen in Canada. All 35 of these men were cleared, which could only mean one thing. The man who picked Kelly up used a pseudonym. This wasn't entirely surprising. After all, police were treating Kelly's disappearance as an abduction. It made sense that the kidnapper would want to obscure his identity. But the realization also revealed another, more interesting truth. What did you think when you heard the name Christensen? I just thought, well, that's a real common name. Because everyone in the area knows a Christensen, right? Exactly. So this man, this Bill, he must have known enough about Standard to realize how many Christensens there are here. He must have been familiar. You understand? I'm not sure. What I'm saying, Mr. Cook, is that this person, well, he might have been from Standard. He might have been your neighbor or your friend. Anybody, really. Surely not. I can't say for certain, but right now, everyone's a suspect. The RCMP wasn't giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. Plus, tips were pouring in. The abduction shook the tiny town, and practically everyone in Standard had some idea of who Bill Christensen might be. But one tip stuck out. A telephone operator told police she believed she'd picked up a call from Kelly on the night of her abduction. The call came in around 10.30 that night from a payphone in Hazar. I picked up and I just heard screaming, really loud screaming. All I could tell was that it was a girl's voice I tried to ask her what was going on, but the call cut off too fast. There was no way to prove that the call had come from Kelly, but both law enforcement and the Cook family believed it did. If they were right, it revealed two clues. 
The man who called himself Bill had driven through Hazar, a small town about 15 miles southeast of Standard, and at some point, Kelly had tried to escape and call for help. It seemed like a potential breakthrough, but the information didn't actually do much to help police. Even if Bill drove through Hazar, he could have gone anywhere from there. Furthermore, he'd been sneaking through the town past sundown. As far as records suggest, nobody in Hazar saw a suspicious man or vehicle, probably because it was too late or too dark outside. Ultimately, the lead did little more than frighten Kelly's parents. If their daughter had been screaming, then she knew she was in danger. They held on to hope that Kelly was still alive and that she'd try to call again. They left their porch light on every night, a beacon to help Kelly find her way home. Police officers and Kelly's parents waited by their phones, hoping to hear from someone who could offer more information. Maybe even Kelly herself. The 15-year-old never called, but soon enough, law enforcement received another important tip. A gas station owner who remained anonymous said that on the day of Kelly's abduction, a strange man came into his store and asked to use his phone. The phone's right there, behind the checkout counter. I was standing up here, helping some customers, and I overheard some bits and pieces of his conversation. I just know I heard him talking about babysitting. Can you remember what he looked like? Oh, sure. He was probably about five foot eight or five foot nine, in his late thirties or forties. Pretty average size, maybe around two hundred pounds. Hmm. Anything stick out about him? I remember he had dark brown hair. It might have been curly. He was clean shaven. I know that for sure. Okay. What about identifying features? If someone passed this guy on the street, what would they notice? Well, his face was really tanned and wrinkled, like a truck driver or construction worker or something. Someone who spent a whole lot of time in the sun. Other than that, he was pretty average. Using the gas station owner's description, the RCMP created a composite sketch of the suspect. The pencil drawing showed a middle-aged man with a round face, dark hair parted to one side, and large, square sunglasses. Apparently, officers believe this person was Bill Christensen because they released the sketch and the physical description to the public. They asked for tips from anyone who'd seen the man in the drawing. And sure enough, tips came. The RCMP already had plenty of leads, but now there were too many to handle. According to one officer, police had at least 500 tips to investigate at any given time. This influx of information didn't let up for two years. Every lead, no matter how small, had to be followed up on. Even though everyone who called the police meant well, tips that led nowhere ultimately distracted from the investigation and wasted time. The RCMP was stretched too thin to make any real headway. And as detectives scrambled to make sense of all the different leads, Marion and Walter Cook grew more desperate. They appeared on television where they begged the man that abducted their daughter to bring her back home, and where they promised Kelly that they would never stop trying to find her. Publicly, the Cooks stayed remarkably composed. Privately, however, they couldn't help but feel suspicious of everyone around them. As hard as they tried to remain optimistic, their minds wandered into very frightening territory. They agonized over whether or not their daughter was still alive, 
and they racked their brains for some reason why she was targeted. But as it turned out, Bill Christensen didn't exactly target Kelly. At first, he had his eye on someone else. A local high schooler, we'll call her Annie, spoke to the police. Through tears, she said, <laughs> Four days before, on April 18th, <laughs> I'm sorry. I got a call from Bill, or the man who says his name is Bill. He asked me to babysit for him. I told him I was busy, but... <laughs> but I knew someone who might be able to help him. <laughs> I gave him Kelly's name. <laughs> Annie's story turned the investigation upside down. There were a couple of different possibilities. Perhaps Bill Christensen had been targeting Annie and only called Kelly at her suggestion. Or maybe Bill was simply looking for any teenage girl. It was also possible that Bill never intended to kidnap Kelly or Annie. Maybe something else had happened. Perhaps he and Kelly had been in a car accident or gotten lost on the rural roads. But that didn't seem very likely. Rather, RCMP officers believed Bill had been meticulous. He'd chosen a pseudonym that wouldn't raise any red flags, and he didn't call Kelly or Annie, in all likelihood, from his own phone. He took clear steps to hide his identity and get a teenage girl alone. In other words, police now believe they were investigating a premeditated crime. That meant Bill Christensen was probably more dangerous than they'd previously thought. They had to find Kelly before it was too late. But sadly, time was already up. On June 28, 1981, about two months after Kelly was abducted, a young man named Jerry Nelson was driving his motorcycle on the outskirts of Alberta. It was a perfect summer day. So he and four of his friends had set out for a ride around Chin Lake. The large irrigation reservoir was man-made, but it was just as pretty as a natural pond. Jerry was a few hundred yards ahead of his friends, staring across the still waters, when he noticed something odd near the shore. He drove closer to it, then stopped dead on his tracks. It was a girl's body face down on the sand. Even from a distance, Jerry could see that she'd been bound with ropes. Someone had tied two cement cinder blocks to the corpse, presumably to make it sink. Of course, that hadn't worked. Even with the added weight, the body had washed onto the sand. Jerry felt sick. This was no accidental drowning. This was a murder. Jerry and his friends flagged down a nearby boat and asked the sailors to call the police. Within minutes, officers arrived on the scene. Less than 24 hours later, dental records confirmed the body belonged to 15-year-old Kelly Cook. On one hand, the discovery of Kelly's body was obviously terrible news. Her family was crushed. For the first time in months, they left their porch light off all night. There was no reason to waste electricity. Kelly was never coming home. On the other hand, Kelly's remains did provide an opportunity. Up until that point, RCMP officers had practically no physical evidence with which to track down Bill Christensen. 
they immediately brought the body in for an autopsy, hoping to find clues that would lead them to Kelly's killer. Coming up, the RCMP searches for a murderer and ends up getting help from the FBI. Now, back to the story. On June 28, 1981, a young man stumbled on 15-year-old Kelly Cook's remains. Her body had washed up on the shore of Chin Lake, a reservoir about two and a half hours south of Standard, Alberta. She'd been bound with ropes and weighed down with two cement cinder blocks. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, sent Kelly's body to a medical examiner. An autopsy revealed a key clue. Kelly hadn't died of drowning. Rather, she'd been asphyxiated, and she was already dead when her killer dumped her body in Chin Lake. But other crucial details were still unclear. Detectives had no way of knowing if Bill planned to hide Kelly's body in Chin Lake or if he chose the location at the last minute. They also didn't know the exact circumstances of Kelly's death. Bill might have murdered her the night he picked her up, or he might have held her captive for weeks. Either way, one thing was now clear. There was a killer on the loose, and it was up to the RCMP to catch him. Detectives continued pouring over leads. Meanwhile, Kelly's family organized her funeral. On July 3rd, the local church overflowed with mourners. Businesses shut down. Kelly's entire high school class showed up at the service. Her family realized that they weren't the only ones experiencing a terrible loss. The whole town of Standard had been affected by the crime. And yet, a certain fear lingered, even amongst friends, family, and neighbors. Kelly's family felt suspicious. Anyone could be Bill Christensen. Law enforcement agreed. In fact, a report from the funeral home seemed to suggest that Kelly's killer had tried to get close to her casket. When did this happen again? Uh, Yesterday, officer. I just finished preparing the body and this man walked into the funeral parlor. He was around six feet tall, maybe in his late 30s. He asked if he could see Kelly's body. Hmm. What did you say? I said no, not unless he had permission from the family. It was just awfully strange, because as far as I know, the only people who knew Kelly's body would be held here overnight were her parents. I asked them, and they said they didn't know of any friends or relatives that tried to visit the parlor. It just really rubbed me the wrong way. Have you seen the man again since then? Any chance he was at the funeral today? I don't think I saw him, but honestly, I wasn't really looking. He definitely could have been there. There's no way to know if the man that asked to see Kelly's body was the same man who called himself Bill Christensen. The physical descriptions seemed to overlap. Both men were middle-aged and of fairly average height, but both descriptions were also pretty vague. Nevertheless, in April of 1982, almost a year after Kelly's abduction, detectives were still searching for the person who asked to see the 15-year-old's body. That's probably because it was one of the best leads law enforcement had. Tips still came in regularly, but the RCMP had cleared every potential suspect. No accusation stuck. Desperate, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police sought help from an unlikely source, the USA's Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
Kelly Cook's murder was one of the first Canadian cases to be taken to the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit. American analysts created a profile of Kelly's killer. According to them, Bill Christensen was likely unmarried, but had a string of bitter breakups in his past. They said he'd probably been guilty of intimate partner violence and might have been arrested on domestic abuse charges in the past. RCMP lead investigator Earl Peters said he found the FBI's analysis interesting, but imperfect. Ultimately, he believed the criminal profile was just an educated guess, which meant it couldn't take law enforcement very far. And neither could anything else. As months passed, tips dried up. The police had countless questions and close to zero answers. They spent hours upon hours theorizing. <sighs> I might head home for the day. We're not getting anywhere. No, wait. You were saying about that case in British Columbia? I think you might be onto something. It's all speculation. No, Jim, it's a theory. What's the guy's name again? Clifford Robert Olson, charged with 11 murders in and around Vancouver most of them targeting teenage girls. Seems like a likely culprit until you remember that Vancouver is more than 600 miles away. He could have come to standard, Jim. You know that. I don't have any proof. Okay, so let's think closer. Vancouver's too far, but what about Calgary? A big city less than 60 miles down the road. I've gone through all the cold cases in Calgary. It's possible that there's a connection. There are a few cases of young women who were strangled with some kind of cord. Kelly died of asphyxiation, but we don't know if the killer used a weapon or his hands. There's no way to know if the M.O. lines up. Plus, those cases are unsolved. We don't even have the killer's name. <sighs> All right. Where else can we look? I don't know. I think we're running out of options. I'm gonna head out. Try to get some rest tonight, okay? Maybe tomorrow's the day we get our big break. Unfortunately for the RCMP, the next day proved just as uneventful as the last. They followed up on various Canadian cold cases and searched for connections to Kelly's murder, but nothing concrete materialized. Weeks passed, then months, then years. By 1990, nine years after Kelly's death, the RCMP had interviewed approximately 2,200 suspects. Over the following decades, they continued receiving sporadic tips, all of which they investigated thoroughly. As of 2021, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police still hope to solve Kelly's murder. It's certainly possible for her killer to be arrested and brought to trial. If the descriptions law enforcement received were accurate, Bill Christensen would likely be between 70 and 85 years old today. According to RCMP investigator Earl Peters, Detectives currently have about 40 persons of interest. Because the agency hopes to eventually make an arrest, they've kept information about potential suspects under wraps. Even so, the RCMP still welcomes tips from people who have concrete clues about Kelly Cook and Bill Christensen. They believe it's likely that Bill confessed his crime to at least one person, perhaps a close friend or a lover. According to law enforcement, someone somewhere has to know what happened to Kelly Cook. And there's a good reason for them to come forward. 
There is a $130,000 reward waiting for whoever provides information leading to Bill Christensen's arrest and conviction. Hopefully someone's conscience and the promise of a small fortune will bring the truth to light. With no clear leads, it's difficult to guess who Bill Christensen might be. Based on the available evidence, I think he was a person who had friends or relatives in Standard. He must have known the community well enough to choose a fitting pseudonym, but not so well that locals would recognize him. I agree. I also think he probably didn't target Kelly specifically. He was just looking for a victim. Any girl in Standard could have met the same horrifying fate. More than anything, Bill Christensen used the small town's trusting nature as a weapon. He didn't just take Kelly's life, he took a sense of safety away from everyone in Standard. The same can be said for the men who killed Jeanette Christman and Evelyn Hartley. These teenagers simultaneously illustrate how girls so often become the victims of masculine brutality, as well as how the archetypal babysitter horror stories evolved over the years. All three of these cases were cruel and senseless. They each appear to be acts of random violence in which girls were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Without a definitive answer in any of their murders, these teenagers' loved ones are left with no sense of closure or justice. Just confusion, suspicion, and lingering fear. Ultimately, Jeanette, Evelyn, and Kelly all had their lives stolen from them. Hopefully, one day, we'll know who to blame. Thanks again for tuning in to our Unsolved Murders Babysitter Special. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on Kelly Cook, amongst the many sources we used, we found the episode, Who Killed Kelly Cook? The Backup Babysitter, for Global News Crime Beat series, extremely helpful to our research. If you have information that could lead to the arrest and conviction of Kelly Cook's murderer, call the RCMP. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Laura Faye Smith, Jen Wong, Brian Green, Joe Hernandez, and Tom Bauer. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. supposed to know about them unless they want you to powerful groups with their own very specific agendas and if you find yourself on the inside good luck getting out hi i'm hannah mcguire and i'm saruti bala join us every tuesday for our new spotify original from parcast sinister societies whether it's doomsday predictions deadly greed or world domination 
Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.